Eric Estep here. One of my favorite parts of being a NASCAR fan is collecting diecasts. It's how I got my start on YouTube, actually. To me, a room is not complete until it features shelves of NASCAR diecast cars. It's as good a time as ever to continue your collection or begin an all-new one by pre-ordering your favorite driver's 2022 next-gen diecast at LionelRacing.com or at any authorized Lionel retailer. Lionel is the official diecast of NASCAR, and don't miss Lionel Racing's NASCAR Authentics diecasts at a Walmart or Target near you. Not only is Lionel the official diecast of NASCAR, but they're also official supporters of the Out of the Groove Podcast Network. So what are you waiting for? Head to LionelRacing.com to order your favorite driver's 2022 diecast. Hey, Ben, it's Aaron. Hey, Aaron, it's Ben. So, Ben, how long have you been following NASCAR? A lifetime. Well, how fitting, then, that we're the hosts of the A Lifetime in NASCAR podcast. A Lifetime in NASCAR highlights NASCAR's illustrious history with analysis and anecdotes from a couple of NASCAR historians, namely myself, Aaron Burns, and my buddy Ben White, who's covered the sport since Rusty Wallace was a rookie. We'll discuss contemporary NASCAR topics and everything we've seen and heard through the years. You're going to learn about where the sport has been, where it will go, and the inside scoop on some of the craziest stories you'll ever hear. So Ben, kicking things off, uh, episode eight, big name driver that I think both of us have followed for many, many years. I even mentioned him in the intro this week. Uh, our driver of the week this week, a guy who needs no introduction, but I'm gonna give I'm gonna give you one just just in case. He's a 1989 NASCAR Cup Series champion. He's uh, voted one of NASCAR's 50 greatest drivers in 1998, very deservingly so. He is Rusty Wallace is the driver of the week this week. Ben, you covered Rusty. You saw a bunch of his races. You were around in the mid 90s when he was winning all the time. What are some of your favorite memories of interacting with Rusty? Oh, uh, well, the, the first thing that comes to mind about Rusty Wallace, uh, Aaron, is the fact that when he when he talks, he just talks and talks and talks and talks <laughs> very fast, and uh, just like he drives race cars, but a super, super nice guy and somebody that I've had a lot of fun covering over the years. Actually, he came into the sport, I believe, uh, 83 or 84, driving for a team owner by the name of Cliff Stewart. He came from uh, the St. Louis area, Fenton, Missouri area, by the way, is the same as uh, where Ken Schrader is from. That's right. And that's right. And and came and Rusty worked his way through the ASA uh, division, which is American Speed Association, uh, short tracks for several years. And then, of course, uh, was discovered by Cliff Stewart said, hey, I love the way you race. I want you to come to NASCAR and, and come to the Winston Cup Series. And, of course, he jumped at the chance and drove Pontiacs in his first year with Cliff Stewart. Just, you know, you knew Rusty had something very special. But I have to back up a little bit because I just remembered another race he did in 1980. I believe it was March of 1980, driving a Roger Penske Chevrolet number yep. 16. Yep. And ironically, he finished second, I believe, to Dale Earnhardt that day. That's right. So to think his very first start in a Cup Series race came in Atlanta, which was Atlanta International Raceway at the time. And he finished second, and that showed you right there what a what a talented driver he was. And then, of course, like I said, early 80s, uh, just kind of worked his way up. Won his first race in 1986 at Bristol. I remember being there for that. And just as the years went on, just on and on winning, he won the championship in 89, as you said. And then 
collected 55 Cup Series victories throughout his career before his retirement. So just an incredible driver and uh, someone we, we, when you say Rusty Wallace, you automatically associate it with NASCAR and the Cup Series. And Rusty Wallace, speaking of him, such an incredible short track driver throughout the years. You, you mentioned, you touched on his ASA background, Ben. Rusty was just incredible in the short tracks. It's like he kind of took over from Daryl Waltrip as the most dominant guy on the short tracks from the moment he got that first win, driving, I think it was a blue Alugard Pontiac Grand Prix for Raymond Beetle. I think he replaced Tim Richmond in that car. Right, and sure if did. I'm not mistaken, Ben, I think it's pretty crazy. Richmond went to Hendrick Motorsports, and Rusty took over in this car. And uh, Rusty got his first win in, with uh, Raymond Beetle before Tim Richmond got his first win with Rick Hendrick. Now, yeah, I believe now, so. That's correct. Now, granted, of course, you know I don't think Rusty won again that year. And Richmond went on a hot streak after he finished second in the Coca-Cola 600 at Charlotte in May. But back to Rusty. This guy is one of the most dynamic personalities in the history of NASCAR. When I was a kid, I, I, I liked I liked Rusty. How could you not like Rusty, first of all? He's such an entertaining person. One of my favorite childhood memories was the fact that my parents, I used to always joke that whenever somebody's interviewing Rusty, he always had to say a swear word in the interview on TV. <laughs> it was never like a major one, but it was like he was almost contractually obligated to have to throw one word in there that would make the producers go, oh, I wish you didn't say that. But that's part of the charm of Rusty Wallace. He's a very, uh, shall we say, unfiltered person. And yeah. I was very excited when he became an announcer uh, following his retirement from the Cup Series in 2005 because I knew he had the personality to be good at it. He started out doing IndyCar uh, broadcasting with ESPN and ABC and was on ESPN for a long time. And, you know, just this gregarious personality. Uh, ben, I'm sure you've got one or two moments of interacting with Rusty that are, are pretty crazy. And, you know, we're not even going to get into the ones of him swearing in the interviews, right? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it was kind of funny because in Rusty's case and good old Rusty, he just about had to have a guy with him all the time to do that seven second delay thing that everybody does on TV because yep. you knew something was coming. And uh, But now Rusty was just an incredible race driver, and it was very fitting that he won his first Cup Series race at Bristol because there were some tracks around the Missouri area that very, very close to what Bristol Motor Speedway is and was then, and just the high banks and short straightaways. And he was a master of those kinds of things. So anytime he went to anywhere like, say, Richmond or Martinsville or Bristol or any of the short tracks, of course, he knew he had to be a favorite to win that particular day. And and just and then great on the, on the super speedways as well. And, of course, we remember a couple of really bad crashes he had on the super speedways. That's right. I believe one came at Daytona uh, in 93. Yeah, he won in 93 when he flipped down the backstretch in that bad right. crash. Right. And then he had a crash uh, at Talladega when he and Earnhardt got together and just thank the good Lord that he wasn't hurt badly in either one of those because uh, I think he had a broken wrist in the one at Talladega, but just took some real horrific spills in those cars. But just a tough, tough race car driver and somebody that everybody knew in the garage as well as in the, in the grandstands that, okay, here's a guy that's going to come with, if he doesn't win, he's going to be in the top five. If he doesn't, something that doesn't happen to his car. And he was so, so good at uh, on their short tracks. And I would say that's be, he would be his forte. He won some sp super speedways, of course, but short mm -hmm. tracks were what, what really defined Rusty, I believe. What's so crazy is that for all the success Rusty had, he only won one race at Daytona his entire career. It was the 1998 Bud Shootout. You now know it, again, as the Bush Clash, as I knew it when I was a kid. But 
Rusty won that race, Ben, under some pretty interesting circumstances. I remember vividly watching this with my dad. And so Jeff Gordon won the first segment. Back then it was 10 laps, two 10-lap segments. Start the second segment, had a caution. Gordon's leading. They get ready to go back green. Gordon and Rusty, I believe, are on the first row. And Gordon's a control car for the restart. And he he doesn't go. like He, he doesn't get up to speed quickly. So Rusty you know, hits the gas as Gordon accelerates and uh, Jeff, I think, uh, messed up his gearbox and, and couldn't shift. And it was only a one lap restart. So they, they didn't rerun it. So Gordon just fell off the pace and Rusty won the race. And there was a bit of this controversy, uh, which, you know, didn't, you know, you could say it kind of followed Rusty for a lot of his career, at least some controversies, not nothing too major, but I think a lot of those things went along with his personality. In this case, it was just along the circumstances of a race that he won, but it's, it's fascinating to think about some of these guys who have had so much success in the Cup Series, like Rusty, but you know never won a Daytona 500. In Rusty's case, he only won the shootout, and he never won a points race at Daytona. Uh, Mark Martin never won a 500. You know, so Tony Stewart fans, Kyle Busch fans, take heart. You know, I mean, maybe Kyle's going to get one. We don't know. I thought he had a good shot about it this year. Uh, it did end up happening once again, but... Yeah, Rusty Wallace is such a cool personality. I first met him, Ben, at North Wilkesboro when I went to my first race weekend, which was qualifying for the Tyson Holly Farms 400 in 1991 in September. And I still have the picture of me and Rusty. And when I interviewed him once at Media Tour, I believe it was in 2015, I told him about that. And then uh, the next time I encountered Rusty was at Dick Sporting Goods in Mooresville the next year when he <laughs> was buying that? he was buying shoes beside me. <laughs> <laughs> about so that? that's pretty cool. Yeah, Rusty's yeah. Rusty's a cool guy. He had a uh, he had several pairs of shoes in his shopping cart, and you know somebody's gonna be a big spender when they go to Dick Sporting Goods and actually go out of their way to get a shopping cart. Like for me, yeah. it was like I'm getting one thing and I'm getting out of here. Um, but Rusty, I guess, needed some new shoes or something, and I was. You know, I was going through, you know, Carolina Panthers hats or something like that. I was like, oh, there's Rusty. Um, yeah, you know, cool. just just a cool personality. Uh, one of my best friends is a huge Rusty fan, has uh, Rusty Wallace stuff up in his office at work. So he's he's definitely one of those popular drivers of the 1990s. And, and with good reason, Ben. I mean, the guys, you know, I talked about his personality. But, you know, like you said, he was a remarkable race car driver who could win on most any racetrack if he had, you know, the slightest bit of luck particularly at the short tracks. So when it came to Bristol, Richmond, Martinsville, you know, if you didn't, if you did fantasy NASCAR in the 1990s, Ben, wouldn't you say you'd put Rusty as a starter on your fantasy team in every short track race? Oh yes. Uh, no question about that. Every, <clears throat> every one of those, because he, he was just so uh, dominant on the short tracks. Uh, like I say, in the ASA division, as well as bringing that talent to the, to the cup series. But one of the things I remember about his, victory in 1989 as far as his championship it was the only lone championship he had in the cup series but i was in the press box that day he was driving the number 27 kodiak uh raymond beetle pontiac that day yep and i just remember getting out of the car and stepping over to the hood and jumping up and down on the hood just eight six or eight times and then jumped <laughs> off the car the man was absolutely just floored that he had finally finally gotten that championship and he had gotten close a couple times but you know talking about uh rusty the personality every time you go to him you knew that it would be a relatively short interview because he 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 talked like he drove you know flat out and you'd be some some guys no disrespect but i loved robert yates robert yates was such an incredible incredible friend to me 
But when you did an interview with Robert, it was, okay, 15 minutes later, you got your answer because <laughs> he yep. tell you so much great stuff. I remember but that well. Rusty, yeah, but Rusty was the kind of guy that, uh, okay, so how's the car? Well, let me tell you, he just really on and on and on and on. That's going to be great. And he's like, super. I don't have to transcribe a bunch of stuff. <laughs> so, you know, he was just, Rusty was on eight cylinders and still is all the time if you try to track him down he's got 92 things to do today and he, even greg his son who helps manage some of his stuff i said i don't know where he is but i'll see if i can find him and just constantly on the go but yeah great guy great driver and great friend he's been really good to me over the years rusty the interesting thing about rusty is that he drove for roger penske full-time in the cup series so roger the captain came back to the cup series in 1991 and Rusty was his driver. He had bought, if I'm not mistaken, but didn't he buy, but he basically bought Raymond Beetle's team because he didn't have enough money to keep it going. Um, and so they had the, the, they just changed the number to two and kept the Miller Jr. Draft sponsorship. Well, apparently Rusty, a few years ago, there was a story that was published that Penske was thinking about pulling out a NASCAR that first year. They were like halfway through the 91 season and, and Penske was like, I don't know if I want to keep doing this or not. And Rusty, you know, was pleading with him like, man, you got to keep doing this. You know, like, this might be the last chance I get. Um, now I, I can't let you, you know, I, I can't, I stayed here and I, I had faith in you. I can't let you, you know, hang us out to dry like that. And so ultimately, of course, Roger Penske changed his mind, stuck with it. Rusty raced full time for Penske for 15 years, Ben, and he won a vast majority of his races with, with Penske, uh, including some, some pretty unforgettable ones. But uh, what's interesting about that, and the amount of time he spent driving for them, Ben, is that you're, we're getting to where Brad Keselowski is not too far from passing him a number of starts with Penske, if I'm not mistaken, because Brad has been a full-time driver for the captain. I believe this is his 12th season, and he started running full-time at the end of 2009 for Roger Penske. So he's definitely second most starts behind Rusty, and he's really catching up to him for, for number one. And they both have incredible legacies. Brad actually won the first championships for, for Penske in NASCAR. Certainly he's won gosh knows how many in IndyCar. But right. in NASCAR, he won the, the Xfinity title in 2010, a cup title in 2012, driving that famous Blue Deuce. And when I hear the phrase the Blue Deuce, no disrespect to Brad, but when I hear the Blue Deuce, I think of Rusty Wallace nudging Jeff Gordon at Bristol or Rusty Wallace bumping into Earnhardt or you know, even before the Blue Deuce, when it was the the midnight black number two car, Rusty throwing a water bottle at Earnhardt after uh, mm -hmm. Bristol. <laughs> I remember just, that. Yeah. We, there's so many Rusty Wallace stories, Ben. We could have three podcast episodes and just talk about Rusty, I feel like. Yeah, we could. And, uh, you know, Rusty, uh, he he was just one of those guys that was, like I said, flat out. On the opposite end of that equation, Roger Penske is the kind of guy that is obviously he's got a bazillion things going on and all these multi-million dollar deals on the table. And, you know, so Rusty and, and Roger got along great, I think, because, you know, Roger wasn't right there every minute. But, he, of course, he just kept his eye on the ball and kept his eye on this race team, of course. But, I mean, Rusty had worked on a bazillion race cars before he ever got to the Cup Series. And, of course, he has some great crew chiefs that helped him along. So the chemistry was there. You know, like I said, Roger was on the business side. Rusty was on the track side, and they had a great, great chemistry and combination to to be successful. But you're right; the vast majority of Rusty's wins have come with Roger Penske. Yeah, uh, Rusty and Penske, an incredible combination. So late in Rusty's career, he's driving the Miller Lite car, and he's got a new rival. It's the son of one of his good buddies, it's Dale Earnhardt Jr. And he's driving the the Budweiser car. 
So this being episode eight, we've got to talk about the history of the number eight car. There are so many successful drivers. I think everybody under the age of 35, though, who is a NASCAR fan, when they think of the number eight car, they think of that stylized number eight. They think of Dale Earnhardt Jr. Uh, that, that's, that's the guy when I think of the eight car band. I think of that red number eight car um, making fans at Daytona and Talladega stand up and howl and cheer when he takes the lead and him winning all those races. Four straight wins at Talladega. Just let that sink in. He won four straight races at Talladega, a place where everybody will say it's a lottery for you to come out and win. Uh, Just the fact that he, like his father, could work the draft and put himself in position to get the lead in the closing stages. And it wasn't just, you know, Ben, a lot of people give Dale and Dale Jr. a ton of credit for, for getting to the front, their ability to get to the front in a restrictor plate or super speedway race. And it's incredibly warranted. But what I think isn't mentioned enough is the fact that they were all they were just as good at holding on to the lead. And that's what makes it so impressive they had all this success between them. Dale won 34 super speedway races. Dale Jr. won 17. Uh, and those are just at Daytona. They won more than 50 races just at Daytona. We're not even getting into what they did at Talladega. But mm-hmm. you, you think of that eight car, I think of Dale Jr. I think of him winning the Daytona 500, all those wins at Daytona and Talladega. And he also had quite a bit of success at places like Bristol and Richmond. Um, but he's one of a lot of guys. You know, Tyler Reddick driving the eight car now. I think he's probably going to get his first win this year. I'm not sure where, but you just get that feeling. This guy's got a lot mm-hmm. of talent, and he's going to add to that because uh, the eight car hasn't won a race in the Cup Series since Dale Jr. took it to victory lane at Richmond in, I believe, May of 2006. So we're looking at almost 15 years since that famous number's been in victory lane. But it has got an illustrious history. Who are some other guys that you think of when I say the eight car, man? Well, well, the one that comes to mind Im- immediately for me is a guy that was raised uh, in the early 60s. Unfortunately, we lost him at Riverside International Raceway in January of 1964. And that was uh, Joe Weatherly. And he drove the number eight car for Budmore Engineering. And the thing about uh joe he was you got to understand joe was a comic i mean he could have been a great stand-up comic because he was so funny all the time just all the shenanigans he would play on people he would do stuff like take a box to a crew chief and have a rubber snake in it and stuff like that just to see him jump he was one of those types of guys but the first time and i love doing this part of our show because i love to go back and look but the first time the number eight went to victory lane was with joe weatherly and it came on february 24th 1961 at daytona international raceway it was a qualifying race you know now the 150s that helped set the field for the daytona 500 are not points events but back in the 60s they were considered as official victories and so uh, joe weatherly took that victory uh you know over marvin patch that day and sadly that was the same race that Lee Petty and Johnny Bochamp, who, by the way, ironically, finished 1-2 in the 1959 Daytona 500. Uh, and it was reversed from Johnny Bochamp back to uh, to Lee Petty as far as a victory. And uh, as it turned out, Lee Petty uh, sadly had a really bad crash in that race and ran a few more races after that but pretty much ended his driving career. So, but yeah, that particular day, it was uh, Joe Weatherly who took the victory. Yeah, and Joe Weatherly's a, a very interesting person. If you want to study NASCAR history, I suggest reading about Joe Weatherly however you can. My great aunt Linda, she used to go to races throughout the Southeast in the 1960s, and she was a big Joe Weatherly fan. 
the, the stories that I've heard about him being the, the, um, the clown prince of NASCAR at the time, Ben, he was such a good friend with Curtis Turner. Mm-hmm. And I think, correct me if I'm wrong, I think that Joe Weatherly also had an interest in aviation and flying. And I've heard this story once that he was flying somewhere around Charlotte and he got lost and he still made his way back. His, uh, I guess his navigation system wasn't working, um, probably more rudimentary in the sixties as it is now, but so he got lost. And apparently Curtis Turner asked him, uh, Joe, how did you find your way back? And he's like, well, I just started flying really low and I just followed the street signs. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And, that that is a true story, and there's also I was talking about aviation. A Curtis Turner quick story there. Uh, he was flying over Easley, South Carolina, and he remembered a guy down there had owed him some money and some liquor, and so he said, "Well, I can solve that problem." So he dropped his airplane down on the on the, the street, and across the street was the Baptist Church, and of course he dropped it out about the time those the people were coming out of church, and everybody scrambled. Needless to say, the the FAA did not keep let him keep his license for very long after that. But yeah, they were that kind of guy, that that group. Joe Weatherly and Curtis were. It was a party every chance they had a chance to be uh, in that position because, you know, and, and of course, as I've said before, Curtis Turner would say if the party got boring, he said, "Okay, we're going to start a new party in 15 minutes." And those parties lasted for days. And Joe of course, was right in the middle of it. But yeah, the number eight was, and that's another great story about Joe Weatherly. Somebody asked him once, he said, why do you, why do you like the number eight? He said, it's very simple. If I flip my car, the number doesn't change. (laughs) (laughs) Great point. Great Great point. point. Yeah. Yeah. So he was just, he was a real, they called him the clown prince. He Mm -hmm. was, Joe was just so funny to be around. I didn't have the honor of meeting him because I was obviously too young then. But he was just so much fun, according to some some folks uh, that knew him. And, of course, we lost him, sadly, at, at Riverside when he came off a of turn six. And the car got in the wall, and his head, they think, hit the wall, and, and he was killed instantly. But he was, on top of his game, he was the reigning champion at the time. So one of the best drivers in NASCAR of the early 60s, for sure. Yeah, and if I'm not mistaken, Ben, correct me if I'm wrong here. I feel like I say that a lot. Um, but didn't Joe Weatherly drive his car into a swimming pool? Oh yeah, that that also did happen, and it was uh, one of those situations to where I, again I bet with Curtis. He said, "I bet you I could put my car right in the middle of that swimming pool," and he's like, "I bet you can." <laughs> one of those deals, you know. And yeah, we've we've heard the stories of how I remember there was uh, just uh, just times that the two of them, you know, if you if you found one, you found the other, and and they called each other pops and the reason they called their, themselves pops was because they they popped each other on the racetrack so much so curtis and joe both if they couldn't remember your name they'd walk up to you and say hey pops how you doing and that kind of covered the base but uh that's where it came from is they pop each other on the racetrack just to see if they could and spin each other out and i mean just crazy crazy stuff and and just a fun guy to be around from what i've been told i did like i said i did not have the honor of meeting him yeah, it sounds like he would have been really cool. So, Ben, uh, they got me thinking, since you confirmed that story for me, if you had to pick one active NASCAR driver who's most likely to uh, bet that he could drive his car into a swimming pool, who would you say would be most likely to do that? Oh, man. Uh, that's mm, i got to think about that just for a second. Um, I'll give you a hint. I'll tell you my okay. pick, and, okay. and I'm going to qualify my pick. Okay. Because he's not an active driver anymore, but he was last year. 
Not only do I think Clint Boyer is the most likely driver to do <laughs> yes, that, yes. I would say I think there is a decent chance Clint Boyer has, in fact, already done that. Probably so, yeah. Clint, if you wanted to pick drivers that uh, acted like drivers, that'd be a fun fun thing for us to get into later on in another show. But, yeah, definitely. Clint Boyer would be the, the Joe Weatherly of, the, of this era. He really <laughs> would. That's a great pick because, I yeah, you couldn't pick anybody better. Now, with that said, I feel very confident in saying that Joe was quite a bit wilder than what we see with Clint Boyer, at least what we see. Yeah. But now Clint's a great guy, and, and he's he's done a great job in the booth this year uh, with with Jeff Gordon and Mike Joy uh, on the Fox broadcast. He's just he fits in, he gets it, he makes it entertaining. And yeah, that that would be a great analogy between Joe Weatherly and, and Clint Boyer. But like I said, in, in a later show, I think we could have some fun comparing older drivers to to, to today and driving styles, and also uh, you know personalities. That'd be a lot of fun to cover. So, I, I, so if you can't pick Clint, who would you say? If it's got to be somebody active, I'm gonna put you on the spot and see if who who you would who you would choose because it is a tough question. There's no doubt. It, but it is. who would you well, say? Well, the one guy that really comes to mind because he's so out there and, and has no problem telling you what he thinks, uh, I, I sort of think of Tony Stewart in a way because, I mean, you got to remember Joe had no boundaries, and we've seen Tony a lot of time. Now, he's mellowed out quite a bit since he was has become a team owner, but back when he was a driver, you didn't know what he was going to say, what was going to happen, and uh, you know he would put his car in places that wouldn't fit, same way with Joe. I, that's the first one that really, really comes to mind uh, out there a little bit because, uh, you know, like I said, Tony, a great guy, but he would he'd flat out tell you what he thought. And if he's on TV or not, he'd just let it rip. So that's gonna, my pick. I'm going to come up with one off the wall, too. I'm going to give you a second one who I think might do it. And it, it, it's not who you might think, but I think Ryan Blaney would be likely to drive his car into a swimming pool um, because for two reasons. I know at one point he had a pretty awesome Jeep. Uh, that he drove to a press event we had at the Speedway probably about four years ago. But uh, Blaney has that personality of the type of guy who you knew when you were a kid who was pretty quiet, but, you know, I feel like he could get pretty wild at a party. I I can't confirm this, but I I think I I could just see, you know, Blaney just gives off that would be willing to drive his car into a swimming pool vibe. You know, if if there were such a thing, I think he just gives off that vibe. Maybe it's just me. Um, Love to know what some of you guys think. Um, because, you know, if, if you think that, that I'm off base and, and picking Ryan Blaney, cause I'm going to tweet him and I'm going to tag him because hopefully he'll respond. I'd like to know if he's done it, if he's considered it, or, you know, maybe if Boyer's trained him on exactly how to do it at what, what lift point. Cause this, here's another thing when you, when you get talk about this, Ben, now guys are more technologically advanced. They're more technically inclined. You know, I think Weatherly would just bust through the gate and mash the gas. Well, I think now, you know, there's other things you got to take into account, like, where are the diving boards at? What am I going to hit? How do I? Ha- what do I have to avoid? What speed do I have to carry to land it right in the middle of the swimming pool? It, it's a whole scientific thing now. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, for sure. And, <laughs> and you know, and, and these guys, I mean, to be honest, they have to be real careful how they act now, like what they did in the '60s. But yeah, that, I could see that. And in a in a very quiet, unassuming, smirking sort of way, I could see where maybe Chase Elliott and Ryan Blaney could get in a little bit of trouble. You know, maybe in, an, in another country, maybe. I don't know, but uh, no, they, they're good friends, and, and I could just see them. You want to try it? Yeah, let's do it. And they wouldn't say a lot. they just do it. But, you know, talking about swimming pools real quick, i got a quick one to share. Tony, uh, excuse me, Tiny Lund, who was about 6'5 and about 280, 
big guy, but he went by the t- name. His name was Dwayne, but everybody called him Tiny. And he right. ran a 1963 Daytona 500. On the other end of that equation was Kelly Yarborough, who was a little short but stocky, but very, very tough guy. I do know of a story that uh, Tony, uh, I'm sorry, I keep calling him Tony, Tiny Lund was uh, out at the pool. I think this happened in Darlington. He said, where's Kale? He said, oh, he's taking a nap up in the room. Not anymore. And so he goes up there and takes not only Kale, but Kale hangs onto the mattress. And what does Tiny do but just uh, grab Kale and the mattress and drags it down the steps and throws them both in the pool. He said, okay, now he's in the pool. You know, so (laughs) that kind of stuff happened a lot. I mean, it was, you know, and they'd race to... Uh, to to dinner and and the rental cars were beat all to pieces when they got there. I mean, really raced to to dinner, those types of things. It was a little bit of a wild time back in the 60s and 70s, uh, and that kind of calmed down in the 80s. But, yes, a lot, a lot of funny stories like that. And I think one of the reasons that it was so much more commonplace then than now, aside from the fact that drivers have to be more, you know, inclined to to be professional, to care themselves in a certain way because they're representing a sponsor – you know, keep in mind if you're a fairly new NASCAR fan, sponsors weren't really a thing. They certainly weren't a mainstream thing in the NASCAR industry in the 1960s. But another thing that made this more common at that time is the simple fact that a lot of these guys, when they traveled, they all stayed at the same hotel. Mm-hmm. That's correct. Yeah, they did, and and they didn't have the motorhomes like we do now and the jets like we do now. And and uh, yeah, they they would stay at the same places and be at the track all day, and some cases all night if weather made them stay there. And so yeah, they were. It was almost like a a, a moving circus, if you will. They just moved from town to town, and yeah, and a lot of close friendships too. But but you're right. I mean, if there was a pool or a bar, yeah, something something was going to happen for sure. <laughs> So these guys raced at a lot of tracks that have since certainly closed. One of the places that they raced in the 60s that has not closed and is in fact thriving very well is our track of the week for this episode of A Lifetime in NASCAR. And the track of the week this week is, can I get a drum roll? Can I get a drum roll sound effect? Uh, the track <laughs> of the week this week is Martinsville Speedway in beautiful Martinsville slash kind of Ridgeway, Virginia. Um, I love Martinsville, Ben. The first time I went there was October 2013. The first race I ever saw at Martinsville was Bubba Wallace's first truck series win at Martinsville, as it were. Um, That place instantly gave off North Wilkesboro vibes to me. It's the fall race at Martinsville. Fun trivia for you guys. The fall race at Martinsville is the only race on the NASCAR Cup Series schedule in 2021 it was on the first schedule in 1949. So it's changed from dates. It's been in September. It's been in October. It's been in November. But Fall Martinsville has always been on the schedule since year one in NASCAR. I think that's really cool. And there's some big reasons behind that, Ben. Uh, it's such an incredibly historic racetrack. What are some of your favorite memories of the track they call the paperclip? Oh, boy. There's so, so many. And I think what happens when you go uh, to Martinsville, you know that you're going to have first, you're going to have a great seat anywhere you sit. Doesn't matter where that is. You're going to see the entire racetrack. You're going to see some incredible action uh, as far as what's on the racetrack. Not a lot of room there, uh, which makes for obviously for great racing. Seen many, many great finishes there. And then, of course, you see the types like the Richard Petty's and the Darrell Waltrip's who just dominated the place and and you know their their trophy there is a what people call a grandfather clock it's really a grandmother clock and what's the difference i hate to interrupt but i i I genuinely know nothing about these kind of things okay my understanding is the grandmother clock is just very slightly 
smaller than the grandfather clock. It's not a lot of difference, but if you put them side by side, you could tell that there's it's slightly smaller than the other. Huh. But, okay. But yeah, and and though you know Richard Petty, I think had twelve wins there. I think Daryl has twelve. So that means you have twelve grandmother clocks now. And Jimmy Johnson's got his his share. Jeff Gordon's got his share. A lot of them. So where do you put them? What do you do with them? So I did ask that question once. Richard Petty told me he has one in his bathroom. Actually, two bathrooms have one. <laughs> and why would you do that? I don't know. And several, for, you know, Daryl said so several key players in his career have gotten some, and same with Jeff. But think about it. If you had 12 wins at Martinsville, that means you got 12 clocks. That means it drives you absolutely out of your mind if if they're all running at some point so i'm sure they're not running they're just in the trophy rooms and such but what a unique unique uh trophy to have but uh, if i may Aaron, a quick story about martinsville the very first time they opened the track in 1947 h clay earls was the builder of the track a businessman there in martinsville whose family you know uh kept the track for many years before nascar bought it and clay campbell of course uh, his grandson has, is still in charge of Martinsville Speedway. First time they went there, though, they put the little placards on the on the phone poles and said, hey, come to the Speedway. We'll have a great Sunday afternoon. It's going to be a wonderful race, which I guess it was. The problem was they forgot about the fact that when all the people came out of church, they went over and got their, their chicken or whatever for lunch and went over to the, to the track for a 1 or 1.30 start. It was a dirt track, and all these beautiful women in their beautiful clothes from church and the men in their suits and ties and hats, they forgot about the fact that it was a dirt track, and everybody there had all this Virginia red, dusty clay all over their clothes. And so that didn't go well as far as a PR move for the for the uh, racetrack, and the next time, of course, they had to water down the track. So can you imagine all these beautiful women, beautifully dressed, at, right after church, thinking oh we'll just go see a car race no big deal well as it turned out a lot of dirty people came out of there and a lot of dirty faces and needless to say that didn't go quite as well as they hoped so one of the interesting things that i learned about martinsville and this was i've learned this probably 2014 2015 in an unconventional method i was at the uh there's a um antique store used to be it might still be there in downtown mooresville and they had some old, old racing magazines from the 1940, like 1949, 50, 51. Forget the name of the magazines. They're really cool. And they covered mostly American, like what they called big cars then, which is what we know as Indy cars. Um, and then they had some NASCAR stuff in there. I actually saved an, an issue that had the full, the, the back cover ad was 1951 NASCAR schedule. It was in great shape. I think it was called Race Age or something like that. So mm-hmm. um, what, there was a story in there in the 1951 issue that I had about Martinsville, and it had some pictures from the Martinsville NASCAR race, and the wall was literally a fence. So that's where I guess they came up with, you know, it's like, oh, he put it in the fence. Well, at Martinsville, it originally was an actual fence, supposedly. At least it was at that time because in these pictures, you got these big old stock cars uh, ramming into each other and it's just a wooden fence around the racetrack that was the wall um, yes. so that that must be where they came up with the phrase you know he put it in the fence and gosh knows a whole lot of people have put it in the fence at Martinsville since those halcyon days 60 years ago but um, well, heck 70 years ago now right. but um, so the first cup race I covered at Martinsville Bend was 2014 
the fall of 14. Dale Earnhardt Jr.'s first and only win at Martinsville. I bring this up because you said the, the crazy things these guys have done with all their their clocks. Dale Jr. got one clock, and apparently after he won the race that October, when he got it and it was shipped to his house, uh, he would sit it like right in front of the door when you walked in, in front of the front door in his house, so you mm. had to walk around it. So as soon as you walked in, the first thing you saw was this big old clock, and <laughs> you know it was his, his proud way of showing, hey, I finally won this race. You know, he grew up, uh, he went to a military school um, for a, a while that wasn't terribly far from Martinsville. I mean, you know this just as well as anybody, Ben. There, the, uh, there are not a lot of hotels and infrastructure in this small town in Martinsville where the racetrack is. So a lot of people will stay in hotels in Greensboro, North Carolina, and drive the 35 to 45 minutes up, to, up north to Martinsville for each race event. Some crew mm-hmm. guys do this as well. Um, and Dale Jr. went to military school um, not far from the Greensboro area. So, you know, he, he went to some of those races when he was a kid. Certainly his father won several races at Martinsville during Dale Jr.'s childhood. So I know that was a big deal to him to finally win that race. Uh, he came in the media center that evening. By then it was nighttime. Um, just so pumped up. I mean, he was so happy. You know, you'd love to see a guy win a race and just – exhibit raw emotion like that and winning at a track that you grew up going to that you've you know tried for so long he'd been that was his 15th year of racing at martinsville he'd never won he'd come close so many times he'd been passed in the last couple laps for a win he, he he'd come so close he finished second there in the fall of the way to jimmy johnson he finally got this win in incredible fashion too ben dale jr drove through um he restarted in fifth place with the last four or five laps with fresh tires and Races way to the front, nudge Tony Stewart out of the way, and you would have thought, oh man, I don't know you. you the, the roar that you heard in the grandstands. I was standing in the garage area. The roar that you heard in the grandstands would have been what I think it would have been like if Taylor Swift played a surprise concert at like an all girls <laughs> yeah. high school graduation ceremony. I mean, they were just going wild, and it was so neat to see a driver share the fans' emotion like that in Victory Lane. And in the media center after the race, he's just so happy. You know, it means a lot to win at Martinsville. It's a little racetrack. Um, you know, we can go and talk about the hot dogs as well. Martinsville hot dogs are a, uh, a tradition there. Yeah. Um, when I would cover races there, I'd usually cop one or two. You just got to grab one and, and try it. You know, some say they're bad. Some say they're good. I think they're pretty good. Um, I asked Danica Patrick one time if she would if she would get a Martinsville hot dog when she go up there and I think she said that she hadn't tried it, but like once. Uh-huh. Um, now, certainly they, you know, driver's diets can be and generally are very different from the media's, but um, right. some guys love them. You know, Dale Jr. I always grab a couple when he's up there, and I'm sure there are some active drivers who do the same, perhaps sure. fewer than before. But one other quick story, Ben, about Martinsville. The last race, one of the, the last year that I covered a race there, 2015, and it was Chase Elliott's debut. Who, I'd like to know if it was Mr. H who it was, who had the idea. You want to talk about throwing a NASCAR driver to the wolves. <laughs> Make your Cup Series debut at Martinsville at a track he'd only raced on once in the Truck Series. And, <laughs> yeah. oh, my gosh. I mean, like he finished like 40th. But, uh, I mean, how could you blame him, first of all? that it, Honestly, Ben, if I had to pick – if I'm a rookie cup series driver making my debut running this partial schedule for one of the biggest teams in NASCAR. And they're like, all right, man, you can pick where you want your first race to be. That'd probably be my last choice just because 
the Xfinity series didn't race there then. The truck series did, but he only made one start there. So you have no basis of knowledge. And this is a track that every driver from Jimmy Johnson, Dale Jr., Kyle Busch, all the way back past Jeff Gordon, past Dale Earnhardt, back to Richard Petty, Buddy Baker, Bobby Allison, Kel Yarborough, they'll all say it, it, it's a, it, no different than you might try some kind of food that's an acquired taste. Martinsville is an acquired skill. You have it, you have to build up years of experience to learn how to get around that place in most cases. And I guess Chase really, uh, they put him through the ringers that first time, man. I yeah. never forgot that. Yeah, they sure did. And, you know, Martinsville is a track that one particular driver who was one of the very, very best in this business could not win there, and that was Bobby Allison. He got within five to ten laps time and time and time and time again, and his brakes would go out. He said, I never could figure out how to do the brakes at Martinsville and it's so important to stay off the brakes but it's hard to stay off the brakes there because it's short straightaways fast short straightaways and then to very tricky turns but yeah that would have been tough for Chase to be thrown to the wolves at that particular place but hey what a great place to, to learn uh, another one comes to mind Terry Labonte drove his very first race of all places at Darlington Raceway in 1978 so that's another tough one but a couple of quick ones i want to mention about martinsville and we can move on here but a couple of quick stories number one i remember about six or eight that's probably 10 or 12 years ago now there was a real uproar in the garage area and a bunch of the teams were going to go talk to mike hilton about this particular problem and and you say well what was the problem i said well the fact was that they were you know americrown who was the the company that helps to provide the catering and also the the food for many of the isc racetracks which martinsville is now an isc track they were saying we're going to change the hot dog and they're like wait a minute what <laughs> you can't change the hot dog it's like new I mean, coke yeah yeah so it's like so helton walks in the room is that you know what's the problem you got a problem with your engines or your tires or what's the deal no 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 you don't understand we got a problem with the hot dog they're trying to change the hot dog and I think they did change it for one or two races, and they en ended up going back to that standard good old red hot dog that they, they had run there for <laughs> 70 years. But it was yeah. like a major uproar in the garage. It's not about cars or engines or crew chiefs or penalties. It's like you're changing the hot dog. I can't believe that you got to stop it. you got to make this happen. And the second story I remember in 1984, one of my greatest days at Martinsville, was I was working for Motor Racing Network, and I was what's called a runner. And a runner is someone who goes down and tries to find out information from the crew chief and comes back to you know, the announcers to let them tell the story. Well, that particular day, I was honored to be working with Ned Jarrett and Benny Parsons. And so they had a place in the middle of the track. And back in those days, it was a building with a second story, and it was windows all around, so you could stand there in this infield broadcast area if you will and you could look out and you could see things so i remember that day that junior neil bonnet was running third fourth and he started dropping back dropping back he, and neil was driving for junior johnson and so i go to junior and i said what's the deal with uh, neil bonnet what's going on and he said we think he broke his wrist when he tapped the back end of a car i said what i mean i really didn't understand what he i thought he was Right. I thought he was pulling my leg. And I said, no, no, I'm serious. He broke his wrist. And see, Neil, I think if I'm not incorrect on this, he had a little problem with bones could break easily for him. It didn't take much. And he had several broken wrists and stuff during races like that. And so I go back to Benny Parsons and I go back to, to Ned, who are up there 
in a commercial break, and I said, they said, well, what'd you find out from Junior? I said, they, he thinks he broke his wrist. And they both looked at me puzzled, like, are you sure you heard that right? And Benny, I never forget, Benny said, are you sure you heard that right? I said, yeah, Benny, I'm sure I heard it right. He said he broke his wrist. And so he drove the rest of that race, which is another good, like 300 laps, which yeah. is a long day. It was a 500 lap race. So this is about 200 laps into it. Neil went on and finished the race. And then, of course, afterward had to, had his wrist casted. And that, by the way, was the first win for Jeff Bodine, the very first win for Hendrick Motorsports. Yeah. And the okay. number five car, but yeah, I was working with those guys, and I just never—I will never forget the looks on their faces. They were, you know, they were expecting me to say, "Oh, his tire's going down, or he's got engine issues." I said, "No, he broke his wrist," and they're like, "How could he break his wrist?" But he got in the back of another car that had slowed, and his hands were on the wheel, and it snapped his right wrist. And if you look back at pictures after that race, you see see Neil on a cast. So it's just a little trivial thing, but something I'll never forget the looks on their faces. They were very surprised. I bet. And so, I mean, you were talking about those hot dogs, man. Listen, NASCAR people don't like rules changes. They don't like the rules <laughs> package to change, no. no matter if it's the engine, if it's aero, if it's the chassis, if it's the hot dogs. You know, they they are not creatures who are well-suited to change in a lot of cases, particularly mm -hmm. if, you, if you hit a setup on something, you know, like having just the right tire pressure in your car or having the right shocks and springs set up or, you know, your final drive ratio and your gears are perfect, or you got just enough chili and onions and slaw in your hot dog, and they don't want you to change <laughs> the form right. that, that formula, right. you know? So it's it's interesting, but that's the way these folks work. So, Ben, when you were doing that in the 80s, uh, if any of you guys have listened and you've gone in the pits at Martinsville, you basically just walk down this little tunnel that essentially looks like a mine shaft when you walk in it, very short walk, and you walk back up the steps and you're in the pits at Martinsville, and it is very cramped, no different than the press box, just because of the space constraints that are naturally there on, on a little short track. Did they still have that tunnel in the 80s? No, they did not. And that's interesting you bring that up because I'm not sure the year it was put in. I want to say late 90s. So from 47 to the late 90s, if I'm not mistaken, what would happen is if you had a problem inside the infield. And by the way, if once you're in, you're in. There's no leaving. There's no going home. Uh, and there's a few times, uh, sadly, that we maybe had a problem in the infield and they had to let, you know, throw a caution to let an ambulance in or out, that kind of thing. And uh, but, yeah, there was many years they didn't have a tunnel. And so it was pretty exciting to know that, hey, they're putting in a tunnel underneath the fourth turn. And but it was just some, and that's what's so cool about Martinsville. It gives you the last gasp look at what a short track of the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s looked like in the Cup Series, and that's that's exactly it. Now, a lot of years though, they had you know shrubbery on uh, outside the turns. Yeah, yeah. And they and they had ducks uh, in the water, and it was a beautiful, and it still is. It's a beautiful place, but that was sort of a signature deal that uh, uh, you know. Uh, five or 10 feet away from the bushes or cars going through there at 110 miles an hour. Many a bush I'm sure got taken out, but it was um, just a beautiful, beautiful racetrack to go to. And yeah, and it's just been a lot of changes to the track. They've made it much better, a lot more seating and done a phenomenal job of keeping it great and on the circuit. And again, locations so great. You mentioned it earlier. Teams would come there from all around the Charlotte area. You wouldn't have to fly there. You could drive there in 45 minutes to an hour. 
Uh, for me, it's about an hour from Salisbury. So it's, it's just a super track to, to go see. If you get a chance to buy a ticket at Martinsville, please do it. It's worth every penny. It's worth the time. Beautiful racetrack. I bet those uh, those old Chevy Monte Carlos and Oldsmobile Cutlasses were really just uh, – they're they're really been there probably just big old high horsepower lawnmowers when they when they hit all that shrubbery on the racetrack. So where I've seen video, they're like was there like a duck pond around the racetrack then? Where where was that? It, I believe if I'm not mistaken, Aaron, it was off the fourth turn, but it was kind of down in the, you know, close to the original offices there, that were I, I would say behind. Uh, the fourth turn going into the towards the checkered flag behind the racetrack there but there are a couple of areas where they had water and ducks and just a beautiful place i mean they kept it and they still do they kept it very nicely mowed and and you think wow what a neat place to come and oh there's a racetrack over there and and i I can't say enough good about it it's just a tremendous racetrack And, and any seat you have there anywhere in the place you don't have a bad seat you cannot get a bad seat at martinsville and and it's, it's a very special track for me, Darlington and Martinsville both. I've had some great memories there. Awesome, yeah, and, and just a, a super cool place for anybody to visit, like we said. Um, so we, we've discussed all these moments in the 1980s, and I wanted to bring up one, some trivia for you, Ben. You may remember this, uh, but I was looking this up in, in some research we're doing for the podcast. And so the 1982 Daytona 500, around the time you started covering the sport on a full-time basis, that, I believe, one of the cool things about that race, I guess cool, you could call it a lot of different things. There was no Chevrolet in the Daytona 500 1982. There was not a single one. So if you look at the results, there was a ton of Buick Regals because that was a General Motors car at the time. Um, using these shorter wheelbases, they were still getting used to this in NASCAR, I guess. And the Buick Regal cut through the air so much quicker at the restrictor plate tracks that almost everybody was running a Buick Regal if you were a GM car. Few people ran Pontiacs. Everybody else ran Fords. And then I think one person drove a Chrysler. And uh, I assume it was, I don't remember, but I assume it might have been Buddy Arrington and that old red and blue 67 car. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's just so random to think about, you know, all the dominance that Chevy has had throughout the years at so many racetracks, um, particularly as it were Daytona and Martinsville with Hendrick Motorsports and, and with Richard Childress Racing as well. And of course, Junior Johnson, but, yeah, I just thought that was so crazy that, you know, it's not been terribly long ago that there was a Daytona 500 with not a single Chevrolet in the field. That was pretty wild. Yeah. Um, do that, you remember that, Ben? No, I don't. And I'll be honest with you, Aaron, I didn't know that. You told me something I didn't know. I knew that they were running, you know, Buick was the car of choice for a lot of the GM teams back then and Oldsmobile as well. But that was back in an era, if you remember back you know, 1980 was the last year of the big bulky Monte Carlo and the big bulky Dodge Magnum and those types of things. And then 1981, they went to the shorter wheelbase car. They really struggled to get that car to stay on the ground, uh, which which is going to play into something else we're going to talk about shortly. But it was one of those cars that it was great, but it was about you know, 10 inches narrower as far as the wheelbase goes. So they had to basically start over and figure out this is before roof flaps and such of that Yeah, having to keep the car on the, on the track. But yeah. And I, I, you're right. And I, it's the fact that I had, I just had forgotten about it. It's interesting. You brought that up because Buick and Oldsmobile were mainly the general motors runs. And then of course you had the Fords, the boxy Ford Thunderbirds. And, uh, and then you're right. I think Betty Arrington was one of the few, uh, drivers that had a, a Chrysler, and there was a guy that his name was Phil, and his last name was Good. Phil yeah, Good. 
Yeah, he I saw drove, him. Yeah, he drove a Chrysler in some races back in that era, too. So, yeah, interesting that uh, they didn't have Chevys in that field. It's something I didn't pick up on, so it's pretty neat that you did. Very much a feel-good story. We can also get the yes. sound effect yes. there. Um, yes. So you touched on you know aero, aerodynamics at restrictor plate tracks, super important, super speedway races, I guess I should say now, I need to correct myself, but super important. In the 1980s, and then we want to talk about qualifying for a little bit. We talked all about racing. You know, in the Lifetime of NASCAR podcast, we want to bring you guys content about everything that happened in races. Before races, after races, talking to people, driving cars into into, uh, swimming pools, but also about some famous qualifying moments. And there are a load of those in NASCAR's history. Ben, uh, one of the most famous ones was Cale Yarborough in 1983, so just a year after this Chevy-less Daytona 500. Cale Yarborough is chasing 200 miles an hour. What do you remember about what happened when he went for that record? Well, first off, Aaron, I remember there was a lot of anticipation because there had been some talk about it being a Waddell Wilson engine, and Waddell was so good at building those engines in that era, always is, still is. And uh, so, you know, you put a combination of Waddell Wilson engine and Cale Yarborough, tough as nails, uh, in a race car, put the two together, you're probably going to get a, get a pole position. Well, Cale had uh, come off of the backstretch, and by the time he got on the backstretch, I think he'd already turned in 200, maybe. He was pretty close to it, if not. And But what is so interesting, and I think you could look at YouTube and some other places to see this clip. When he got into three, he got a little sideways. But as we talked about before, the 1981, 82, 83, smaller car. Wind was really bad about getting underneath the car and, and just taking it completely out of control. Greg Sachs had a terrible crash in one of those smaller cars down there in practice, or in testing, I should say. So in the Kale Yarborough deal, he gets into turn three, uh, just about into turn four. And now if you look at the tape or you look at the video of it, it doesn't flip from the right side to the to or left side to the right side. It flips from the left side to the right side, which means that the driver's side door is going to come down on the racing surface before. Now right. think about what I'm saying because it it flipped it almost backward. It flipped it the wrong direction and it showed you how much air was getting underneath the car, and he had it nailed. I mean, it was a great great run, and fortunately, praise the good Lord, he didn't get hurt in that car but totaled that one so the the funny story about it was they were so determined to have that car on the pole they massaged that car worked on it worked on it they knew it was going to be great well they didn't have a backup car they didn't have anything to go to so they put their heads together and realized that somewhere down in south carolina they had a 1983 pontiac that by the way was an old tim richmond car that was purchased from Raymond Beetle that we talked about earlier. And so, and that even goes back to, if I'm not mistaken, I'm pretty sure I'm right about that. That goes back to even, you know, when Bobby Allison was driving the car in 81, you know, when he finished second to Richard Petty uh, in the 500. So that, and that car, I mean, that's another chapter, but that car was very, very good. It's Pontiac Le Mans that we're talking about. Pontiac Le Mans, yeah. And, And Davey Allison, of all people, was the person who discovered it in the rule book and nobody else saw it coming. And so when they get to Daytona, they had to make templates for it. They, a few races after that, they deemed it illegal because it was too good. But back to the story, (laughs) back to the story though, that particular, uh, Pontiac was at a Hardy's hamburger store in South Carolina as a show car. 
And so they went and said, Hey, I need, we need to borrow your car to race. And so they put it back on a trailer, took it to Daytona, took uh, a part, I asked her to say a part or two from the, or the other car probably couldn't put new parts underneath and then raced the car uh, in, in the race and, uh, and ended up winning it, I think. So he yeah, did, yeah. I mean, he did, he won it. And, but that was a show car in front of a Hardy's hamburger store in South Carolina that won the Daytona 500. It was an amazing story uh, from start to finish. It really is. Yeah, and, and Kale being just a keen qualifier at the restrictor plate tracks, that guy had absolutely no fear. Another guy, Ben, who had no fear on restrictor plate tracks before they were restrictor plate tracks was Bill Elliott, and he turned a lap, what was it, 212 miles an hour in, in uh, 1987? Oh, yes, it sure was. Actually, uh, 212.809, and... Yeah, that was, if you think about 212 miles an hour, not 180, not 190, 212. And Bill told me later on, he said, you know, after that run, two things that he thought about. And I said, what's that? He said, well, I had a couple of fillings I had to get replaced because, you know, it was just so uh, in the car, it was just so unstable. I mean, it was, you couldn't race that way. It was almost like tunnel vision, he said. You just could you could run that fast by yourself uh-huh. for a couple of laps, but you couldn't race anybody that fast. It was just too much. And and the tunnel vision and, and maybe having a filling or two replaced, you know, because he was just jittering in the car is, you know, put it absolutely as fa- fast as he could possibly make the car run. And amazing that he could put 212 into that. And that's probably a record that will never be broken. I'm, I'm pretty sure about that. Yeah, it's incredible. So I got a couple more recent moments that are notable in the history of NASCAR qualifying. First one, Dale Earnhardt, 1996, got involved in a nasty crash at Talladega. He was fighting for the championship that year. Dale was going for what would have been his eighth championship. That ended up happening, and injuries he suffered at Talladega, uh, I think he broke his sternum. Uh, I believe I'm right about that, Ben. Those directly con- you know, contributed to the fact he fell off the second half of the season and it really became a duel between Hendrick teammates Terry Labonte, who wound up winning, and Jeff Gordon, who came up just short that year. But back to Dale Earnhardt. So Earnhardt broke his sternum. He didn't miss a race. He still would start the car. You know, the NASCAR rule, if you guys don't know, if, if, you, if the driver is injured and he starts the race, he takes the green flag, he can pull in the pits after lap one and put a relief driver in, get him out of the car, and the guy who starts the race gets all the points. Uh, funny story, Eric Almarola <laughs> has a funny story about that that we'll talk about another time. But to, so to Dale, it's only been a couple weeks after this crash. They go to Watkins Glen, and Dale Earnhardt qualifies this race car, this hulking Goodrich beast, and he puts it on the pole, at Watkins Glen on a road course, a place that just absolutely throws your body around in, in those harnesses in the cockpit, he put it on the pole. And they, they had this great marketing deal where they you know they had they, they sold T-shirts that said, Hurts so good. Uh, my buddy mm-hmm. Don Hawk, who was Earnhardt's manager then, said they sold out of them and they had to ship them overnight again to Watkins Glen where they could sell them. But a special moment in Dale's history that he won the pole for this race so banged up just proved how tough he was just absolutely tough as nails another one a little bit more recent about 10 years later and it involves another seven-time champion so everybody we've been talking about these these qualifying moments also won championships can't believe that so uh, 2006 at dover ben jimmy johnson comes off turn four during time trials gets loose 
starts to spin it to the inside of the track. Now, Dover, it, it, it operates as a self-cleaning racetrack, you could say, yeah, because sure when does. you spin out, you hit the wall. It, it, there's no if, ands, or but about it. If you come off a of turn two or turn four and you spin in the inside of the track, you're not far from the wall, so you're going to hit it. So Jimmy comes off turn four. You guys are more than welcome to look this up on YouTube. It is it is insane. Look, it, it, it defies description, but I'm going to give it a shot. He comes off turn four. Car's super loose. They've trimmed it out to try to try win the pole. Gets loose coming off turn four, spins it. Jimmy turns into the skid and keeps pirouetting down the front stretch. All the time, the car is losing speed, losing speed, losing speed. And everybody's waiting for it to nose into the wall. And he spins it and he stops it about a foot at most from the inside wall. And it just so happened Jeff Gordon was standing on pit road just on the other side of the wall. And you can see on the broadcast, if you guys check this video out, Gordon raises both his hands up like, oh, my gosh, that was incredible. It was uh, one of the most memorable qualifying moments in the history of NASCAR. Unlike the others that we said, it wasn't because of the speed they had um, or what they overcame or, you know, something like that. It was the fact that just to prove Jimmy Johnson's driving skill. At this time, Ben, worth remembering, he never won a championship yet. He won his first championship later that year. But it just spoke to the driving talent that Jimmy Johnson had in a Cup Series car that he could save that thing. And, you know, yeah, he started at the rear of the, of the tail end of the field, but they still had a car that was intact after he spun it in qualifying. And I don't think anybody has been able to say that since then. No, no, and I think... If I had to guess, the the guys in charge of doing the body on the car probably got on their knees and put their hands in front and just kind of praised him for not putting <laughs> it in the wall. You bet. That's you bet. a lot of lot of work, uh, a lot of overnight stuff trying to get the car back to to being as good as it could be. But yeah, there's some, there's some incredibly great uh, qualifying runs. I remember very quickly. I remember one in 1984. It was going to be Richard Petty's last uh race at daytona the firecracker 400 down there and richard had had a really good run and put the car on the pole and it was going to be a great cinderella story a great pr story what a great story and then sterling marlin comes out uh in the uh in the car he was running and he ends up beating richard by a thousandth of a thousandth of a second and gets the pole <laughs> but it's like that was going to be richard petty's last pole at his greatest track seven time daytona 500 winner wins the pole for the firecracker uh eh, wrong he didn't win it by just a few tenths and tenths and tenths of a second to sterling so that's another funny story that uh just but you're right there's a lot of qualifying efforts that's been a lot of fun to, to cover over the years yeah, and, and the King, so this 1992 uh, July race, Daytona, then it was called the Pepsi 400. My earliest memory of a Daytona race was watching this race because it was the King's last race at Daytona. And somebody had said and accused Sterling Marlin, basically he shot Santa Claus by <laughs> not letting the King win the pole for his last yeah. race at Daytona. And, you know, all right, anybody can say, you know, yeah, you know, the 43 car wasn't running that well in 1992. Some of it you could attribute to the King perhaps being in his 50s by then. Some of it you could attribute to the fact that the team didn't have the technical know-how and the engineering capabilities of some of the larger super teams that already begun to develop then, like Hendrick. But, you know, Richard Petty was always good on the super speedways. And, you know, it, you're only two years removed, Ben, from 1990. He very nearly won his 125-mile qualifying race in 1990. So the King still had what it took to to be successful at a restrictor plate race. But, gosh, I can't imagine the collective groan 
that fans had. They're like, oh, man, we're going to see the king win the pole at Daytona. This is going to be incredible. He might win a race. And Sterling Marlins are the last guys to go out in that Junior Johnson car, and he steals the pole from the king. And the king still started on the front row, and he led the first five laps of the race. I think he bowed out early due to driver fatigue, which was much more of a common thing at that time. Um, definitely Daytona in July didn't help during the day. But, yeah, I, I bet there was just this, you know, you've got to be kidding me when he did that. And I bet you the only person who had a big grin on his face in all of Daytona Beach that day was Junior Johnson, who was Sterling's car owner. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And and, and I could see Sterling, like, uh, oh, well, get, didn't get the memo or whatever. But, uh, yeah, and, and talking about Richard Petty that day, it was extremely hot. He was doing a lot of uh, PR-type stuff, pre-race-type stuff. And, and Vice President H.W. George Bush was there and then uh, before he became president. And uh, so he was, you know, going around with the vice president all over the track and doing this and that. By the time he got to the end, the car halfway through, he was exhausted and, and rightly so because the heat had just was terrible. I remember that year and he had been dressed in his STP uniform all day and you know, that kind of thing. So, yeah, it was just one of those deals where it was just he just didn't have the stamina to go the full full distance but yeah it would have been a fun fun deal to see richard petty on the pole one last time but didn't didn't quite work out yeah and and, uh to to that point ben a very well said story we have come to the distance on episode eight of a lifetime in nascar podcast it has been a blast as always chatting it up with you ben and reliving some of these special moments in nascar can't wait to do it again soon Yep, we're going to be here. we're going to be back with episode nine faster than Bill Elliott could qualify at Talladega back in the mid 1980s. Uh, but in the meantime, hey guys, throw a rating our way whenever you're listening, wherever you're listening. We'd love to hear, read your feedback. Um, you know, let us know what you think. If there's some stories you want us to cover and talk about, we probably experienced it. If not, we've certainly talked to people who have experienced it, and uh, we look forward to presenting more of those stories to you guys in the very near future. In the meantime. For the great Ben White, I'm Aaron Burns. Thanks again so much for listening to another episode of A Lifetime in NASCAR. We'll be back very soon. Until then, so long, everybody.
Eric Estep here. This episode is brought to you by Forney Industries. Get it done with green. Forney offers a full line of welding and plasma cutting machines, metalworking accessories, and more. For do-it-yourselfers all the way to professional metalworkers, Forney has everything you need for your next project. Shop Forney's top-of-the-line products at forneyind.com. That's Forney, F-O-R-N-E-Y, ind, I-N-D.com, or at an authorized Forney dealer near you.